the genesis of the bank is a relationship bank. We're good at relationship management. We look after customers very well. But I think what we recognize to scale a business like this, we need to have a tech angle. And, you know, in simple terms, you know, in a traditional relationship bank, 80% of the time of a relationship manager is spent doing the internal credit processes and so on and so forth, and 20% of customers. Our thought process is to scale this, we have to reverse that. So 80% of the time is available for relationship management and 20% of the internal processes. I'm John Fitzgerald, host of the Cord Podcast. I'm curious about the changing world of work. I want to have conversations that will help us all become future ready. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Cord. And today I am exploring the concept of the world's first human digital bank. To do that, I'm joined in London by Nick Fahey, the CEO of Synergy Bank. And we know that banks have been digitizing their services much longer than many industries. So there's much we can learn from the banking industry as we all adapt to become part digital, part human in the way that we work today. So I think the challenge for a lot of us as business leaders and HR directors is how to do it right, how to digitize our service and enhance our relationship with our clients. And that involves quite a lot in relation to organization restructuring, how to build new technology business partnerships, managing customer communications, making sure our people are upskilled for the future of work and creating a culture for growth and empowerment. And in the middle of all of that, we've got to work through COVID and working remotely. So I'm delighted to be joined by you, Nick. And we met back in 2014. You were heading off to Australia to a new role with Westpac at the time. I suppose before we start on your business journey, I'd like to get some insight for our listeners in relation to influences and your early years in the world and what shaped you and I suppose your journey into leadership from childhood. Yeah, morning, John, and lovely to see you again. As you said, it's been a while since 2014, but uh, yeah, so maybe just to to give you a little bit of colour, I was brought up in a small farm in Ireland and, you know, anybody who's brought up in a farm knows the value of hard work and you're up early preschool and doing vegetables and this, that and the other. So, you know, I think that was quite formative in terms of the hard work ethic and you know, I think also resilience. I think anybody involved in rural life, you know, you do build resilience. And so, so I think in, in terms of my childhood years and, you know, maybe early career, I was always extremely hardworking. I kept that ethic right the way through my working career. I'm a big fan of, you know, ultimately, if you work hard, you'll ultimately get there. And resilience is probably the order of the day in a rapidly changing world. And so, yeah, they're probably two big influences for me. I think probably the other one was that, I was always probably reasonably entrepreneurial. So, you know, when I started my first job, I started a business on the side, which ultimately failed. It was a, a fried chicken business. And I don't know if you remember Edwina Curry and the, the salmonella scare back in those years, but that ultimately killed the business. And But I was always kind of doing one thing and having something else on the side and had that entrepreneurial bent. So I think probably hard work, resilience, entrepreneurial bent was probably the the things that shaped me in terms of early years. And, you know, I remember as a, as a youngster picking potatoes and, you know, from 8 a.m. till 6 p.m. on my summer holidays and whatever. So I think they were probably the, the formative years. And then I went into healthcare and then into banking from there. Yeah. A lot of synergies with my own childhood and Saturday mornings and being sent out to 10 turnips and pig spuds and so on and so forth. So 
yeah, growing up in a farm definitely gives you that resilience. I suppose the other thing is failure at a young age there when you talk about the fried chicken business and having a go. I used to sell timber <laughs> that we used to cut on the farm and stuff like that. So I think failure is something that, um, you know, is something to be embraced at a young age. I know I agree, John. You know, what my father used to have a saying of sense thought is better than sense thought. You can teach somebody something, but when you feel the pain of failure, it does learn you a fairly stark lesson. So I had borrowed money to start this business. I ended up with some debt afterwards, which it took me a year to pay off. And I paid it off, of course. But the point is, it was a tough year having no money and the business being gone and having to repay it. So I think actually, yeah, those were formative years. But actually, the pain of failure does actually motivate you to not find yourself there again. Yeah. So you travelled to Australia then and Westpac and maybe tell us a little bit about that giving you a more global insight into the world from coming from the bank in Dublin. Yeah, I had done a number of years with Bank of Ireland, did great roles with Bank of Ireland and then the opportunity came up to go down to Westpac. I should have said with Bank of Ireland, I worked both in the UK and in Ireland. So I had good experience about the UK market and the Irish market and opportunity, as you said, came up to go down to Australia to work with Westpac. Westpac's the second largest a bank in Australia, market cap over $100 billion. So it's a big, big organisation. So, yeah, I think it was a fantastic time to go down to Australia. It was pre the Royal Commission into banking. And, you know, banks were actively growing, which was, you know, I just really enjoy growing businesses. So, yeah, I very much enjoyed that and uh, took a lot from it because I had worked in smaller organisations, medium-sized organisations, but get the opportunity to go, you know, and work for a global organisation, a big, big organisation was really, really a great experience and I definitely took a lot from it. So bring us forward then to your journey with Synergy Bank as the CEO and starting out there and your vision for this human digital bank and where that came from and how did that start? So yeah, the Synergy Bank was the old Bank of Cyprus business in the UK and uh, when I came back from uh, Australia, Bank of Cyprus owned the business here. So I worked as CEO for that business for a couple of years and the parent decided to sell the business and those syndicate of high net worth investors here in the UK that I've known, and they became involved in the process and the sale process was concluded at the end of 18. So we changed hands in terms of Synergy Capital, who was owned by, you know, four ultra high net worth here, entrepreneurs here in the UK. And, you know, I suppose the genesis of the bank is a relationship bank. We're good at relationship management. We look after customers very well. But I think what we recognize to scale a business like this, we need to have a tech angle. And, you know, in simple terms, you know, in, in a traditional relationship bank, 80% of the time of a relationship manager is spent doing the internal credit processes and so on and so forth, and 20% of customers. Our thought process is to scale this, we have to reverse that. So 80% of the time is available for relationship management and 20% for the internal processes. So we, uh, with KPMG, we looked around the world to see was there a tech platform that was enabling of that relationship model. And being straight on, it didn't exist. So... We then started to talk to the big tech players through KPMG, and we got Google quite excited about the opportunity of building the world's first human digital bank. And we're in partnership with Google at this stage, and Wipro are our systems integrators. So Google, Wipro, and ourselves are building basically the world's first human digital bank. And in essence, I think the difference between maybe the apps that are out there at the moment and what we're building is we're embedding the human into the app. And I'll explain that in, in just a moment. But in simple terms, the, mar the banking market is divided the top end of the market, you have corporate customers, private banking customers. They're typically human-led relationships. Then at the bottom of the market, in terms of mass market consumer and maybe the S of the business market, that's very much talk to the app. It's the app-based model and the traditional banks. 
the middle market is massively underserved and those customers, whether they're medium-sized businesses or mass affluent professionals, they very much want blended face-to-face relationship management, but they'll do digital as well. And ultimately, that's what we're building. It's a hybrid model, which we believe with Google is the future of the mid-market. And, you know, for anybody then looking at developing partnerships with the likes of, you know, Google obviously is huge and, and Wipro. Tell us about your learnings from those type of relationships as you go on that digitization journey. Yeah, it's a great question because we did ponder why would Google partner with a small organization like us? And I think the simple thing is we were doing a world first So I think if you're doing really innovative things, you'll attract the attention of the bigger players and get them excited. And that excitement, John, is really important. You've got to keep that excitement with the big partners. So what we see with Google is, you know, they're a huge organization, hugely successful organization, fantastic partner to work with. But we've got to keep innovating. We've got to stay at the forefront. So we're always keeping them interested and we're always doing the next thing. So where we are at this stage is we think human digital is only starting. And what we will build will be the, the first version of this. But there is continuing innovation to happen over many, many, many years. So I think it's about being innovative and staying relevant to the big partners. So a lot like your iPhone, I guess you have 1.0, 2.0 and uh, consistent upgrades as you go. And where do you see it evolving to before we get into what it is? You know, where do you see this all transitioning from your bricks and mortar where you know, we started out going in and having the personal relationship with the bank manager who in effect became, you know, almost uh, they lost a lot of power and accountability in the traditional banking structure with the way it's changed to now. Where do you see that moving towards? So I think, John, if you look at the market, I think you're going to have different solutions for different parts of the market. As I said, the top end of the market will continue to be, you know, largely human led and a lot being done for the customer by the the relationship manager, relationship director. I think, you know, if you look at the mass market as such or the smaller business, I think the branch will have a role, but a declining role there. I think the future of that is self-service automated technology. So app-based self-service. The challenge with that model is purely, it's not a great customer experience. If you have anything that's a little bit off-piste for routine, very standard stuff, it's fine. But if there's times you need to talk to a human because it's just not straightforward. And my view is that the future of the mid-market is a blended solution. It is human-enabled technology, uh, always though human-led. So I think the future for the mid-market is you'll still have an RM, but instead of going into a branch to meet them, you're going to go into the technology to meet them. Okay. And then going into that technology, the human digital bank, you know, you mentioned enablers of the digital bank. What are they and uh, how do they work out for me as a customer of your bank? Yes, there's essentially three modules in what's being built at the moment. And the, the, the first versions will land this year, so it's not years away. The first piece is the RM embedded in the app and in the technology. I suppose the difference between what a lot of banks do is they build the technology and give it to the RM. We're basically embedding the RM in the technology. So let me give you an example on that, John. So if I was your RM and you wanted to change your address. So in our solution, I will be there with oversight in the app. Uh, you can talk to me on video, you can talk email, we can meet face to face, you can rate me, you can book my diary, all the interaction stuff you would have with me. But for a change of address, I would say I'm going to get the Synergy bot to do that for you, John. And then you interact with the Synergy bot. I'm still there. And then once the address has changed, it clicks back to me. So more and more of those routine transactions will be done by the technology, but ultimately it's always oversighted by a human. 
So that relationship module is important. And my point on the ongoing journey, like Google have 18 or 20 of these bots in development. So we'll deploy three or four in the first version, but there's an ongoing journey of more and more of the routine stuff being done by the technology under the supervision of a human. But that's module one. Module two then is basically lending savings and current accounts made a digital customer experience. Nothing magic just in that, but in our bank, we lend up to about 40 million pounds to individual customers. So it's complex lending because you know these are complex uh, medium-sized businesses. So digitizing that complex lending is not something that's been successfully done before. So that's probably the magic dust of that second module. And then the third module is basically leveraging open banking to give SMEs a set of digital tools to help them grow their revenue, manage their cost base, and also meet their environmental objectives. So they're the three pieces of, I guess, what then comes together. The whole bank is hosted in, in Google Cloud, so it's a full in-the-cloud bank, and it's a full end-to-end bank. We're building basically a, a full bank with a differentiated business model and an open banking platform in the cloud. So open banking, just explain that for people who might not be familiar with the term. Yeah, so open banking was an initiative from uh, over the last five years to basically open up banking, as the name suggests. And basically, it means that banks need to give access to the data of customers, clearly with customer consent, to other providers of services so that banks can't hoard the data they have through open banking. A third party provider, as long as the customer consents, can come to our bank and say, uh, John has consented to data being used and then we would share your transactional data. So it allows other players to essentially use the data that an individual bank would hold to give better offerings to individual customers. So we're using open banking as we're drawing in, for example, accounting information. We're drawing information from different partners of an SME customer to provide different services to them as well then. So it's an exciting technology, but it's a motorway. It, you know, what I mean by that is it's a direction of travel. You've got to decide what vehicles you put on the motorway in terms of commercial exploitation of it. And for me as the SME customer then, where is the return investment for me? Is it a time perspective? Is it more about that I'm getting more visibility on my banking? You mean, for, you mean the benefit from open banking, John, is it? I suppose from the whole digitization of... Oh, the whole digitization, yeah. Yeah. So in simple terms, you know, if you look at most medium business owners and indeed small business owners, they're time poor, you know, they're really busy, so they're time poor. They want a continuing relationship service, not that it change, the, the RM changes every two months and then they got to tell their story all over again. And they want sector knowledge. They want somebody who knows their business that doesn't keep changing and speed of decision. Ultimately, if you have all of those, you'll be a good bank for a small business. So what the Human Digital Bank does is it gives access to that RM in a number of different ways, which is blended human experience. It gives speed of decision through the digitization of the processes. And it also gives value-added services because most SMEs are struggling with how are they going to digitize their value chain. So the open banking platform, we call it Synergy Connect. Synergy Connect basically helps SME owners and business leaders to digitize their value chain. So ultimately it gives them time back and saves the money. I want to ask you a quick question. Is your organization going through unprecedented growth, restructuring or change? At Harmonix, through our consultancy and coaching work with business and HR leaders, we face one common challenge, the overwhelming pace of change and not enough time or resources to properly reset to become future fit. If you would like to register for a free diagnostic session with one of our team of experts, go to harmonics.ie to get in touch today. Now, back to the podcast. 
yeah, I can see huge wins for that. You know, to achieve that, you've got to go on an organization change journey and a people change journeys. So how did you go about that? And how have you required new skills? And what has been the challenges and the opportunities along that journey? That's a really fascinating one, I think. It would be a great case study to look back on in the years to come. But, you know, I think this was a bank that had been pretty static for you know, it's, it's a 60-year-old bank. So, you know, it's not like we started with the Greenfield site. So we had a static bank that hadn't really grown for probably eight or 10 years to any significant degree. So, and then we, we started our journey. We set out an ambitious growth strategy. So, you know, we've grown the bank on the lending front from about 800 million to 3 billion. Our journey over the next three years is to go to 6 billion. You know, it's a fast-growing organization. We're basically creating with Google and Wipro a world first in terms of technology leadership. So that's all happening at the same time. And then also, you know, we're developing a new model through open banking for those business services. So there's a huge amount going on. So I think the first step was to embed some values in the organization. So we created a set of values that would underpin the journey. And, you know, part of that was around, you know, doing the right thing. So high integrity, customer first, putting the customer at the center of our business model at all times, uh, embracing change, because a lot of our team had not really had a lot of change. So we set the foundations on values. We set out a very ambitious plan. So there was a bit of sharp intake of breath when folks saw our plan. And sometimes I find when you set something, a big, hairy, audacious goal, even if you fall a little bit short, you're going to still achieve fantastic things. And then we did clearly have to bring in some new people as well. So we made significant changes in the leadership team and we're hiring you know, 50 to 100 people, the bones of every year for the next three years. So, you know, it's a fast growing firm and we're classed as such by our regulators here in the UK. So, yeah, it's been a journey, I guess, of embedding the value, setting a fairly stretching ambition, then really, I guess, setting out a plan and then making the people changes. And part of the change was investment in the individuals that we had as well. It's not it's not all new individuals, but I think to be in an organization like ours, John, you've got to want to be in a fast growing firm. And if you're not, and there's no rights and wrongs in this, by the way, but if that's not in your DNA, that you like that ever-changing, fast-growing, you know, you can burn out very quickly. So people do self-select as well in terms of saying, I want to be in a different environment. So it's been fascinating. We're not there yet. Where I keep saying to the team here, we're five minutes into the second half. We're three years post-change of control and three years on our listing journey, which is our ultimate objective. We're only past half time, so that resilience and consistency of delivery is going to be important in the next three years. Yeah. And it's so important to create that culture of empowerment, isn't it? And you will get stars that want to be part of that journey and can see that they're going to be surrounded by other people who are energized. So you started talking about resilience and it is, you know, five minutes into the second half and there's always a dip in the second half energy wise. So how to maintain that resilience and energy of people along the journey? Or have you found anything from working remotely or the COVID challenges that impacted the acceleration that you want to go on with the team? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, definitely, John. I think the COVID clearly was a horrific human experience. Let's start there. I think from a workplace environment, we all learn digital skills pretty quickly, you know, in terms of working from home and Teams and Zoom and all these things. And I think they have a place in the environment going forward. We're a people-based business, so we thrive on people interacting with each other. So our model is quite simple. We want our team to be really happy here, and then our customers will get great service ultimately. So 
that interaction of working together, solving problems, uh, you know, innovating, all of that is really much better done face to face. So that said, the world has now moved on. So we've implemented a hybrid working model. So our colleagues are in the bank three days in a week, roughly, and two days working from home. But clearly, if they need somebody needs to be in five days, our team are flexible, and then they'll do that. So I think certainly COVID didn't help us accelerate. I think we're now in that hybrid model. It's much better. I think we did take a dip through COVID. We didn't accelerate as much as we could. Let's put it that way. I think you're right, though. The resilience point is really important. If you take that analogy of kind of five or 10 minutes into the second half, what are we doing? We're bringing in fresh legs. So we, you know, we're strengthening the team. We're bringing in some extra roles and extra people into the team. So as I said, we'll recruit between 50 and 100 people this year. But also we've got new leadership roles. We're broadening and stretching out some of the leadership roles. I think equally having a bit of fun, you know, through COVID, it wasn't much fun around. You know, we, we, had a, we have regular kind of staff events and stuff like that just to keep the energy up and keep the team gelling. And always, I think when you're having a win or two, you know, ultimately it feels better. It feels like you're pedaling downhill. So we like to find wins along the way on the milestone journey. But, you know, I've always found, John, that if, you know, to keep a team and keep morale up, there's probably three things we all need as human beings. One is certainty. The other is recognition. And the third thing is belonging. So I think having certainty that the journey is the right one and that we're achieving milestones is really important for morale and, you know, keeping energy up. But actually recognizing the successes and, you know, especially on a three or a five year journey, it's a long way out. So having those wins along the way is is critically important. And then belonging and feeling part of the team. And that's why I think that the, the working in the office and having some time together is really important to feel a belonging connection to the organization. Something coming up there around hybrid work for me, and I find that organizations are continually challenged. What do we do when we come into the office? What do we do? What kind of work do we do when we're at home? Have you found certain types of, I suppose you talk about belonging there and, you know, working together and brainstorming through challenges. Have you found certain work that seems to be more in the office now than at home? Yeah, I think collaborative type work works so much better when people are together. Innovation, brainstorming, problem solving. I think when you have to put your hand up to speak, as you do on some of these platforms, it's not conducive to the optimal, I guess, in those areas. I think homeworking is fine. Like we all have emails to answer and bits and pieces when, you know, it's helpful to have a bit of thinking time, you know, so that all works fine. But I think when you're solving something or it's team-based work, the face-to-face interaction is absolutely invaluable for that. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that strikes me there is about, you know, I've seen stats around the difference between a bank and a fintech. And, you know, in a bank, for example, something like 15% of people are in IT and operations, whereas in a fintech, 55% of people are in that IT technology space. So where are you in that balance between people with, I suppose, specific technology roles versus relationship management roles? Yeah, I think we're probably slightly off-piste on this, John, because what we chose to do is, you know, technology skills and resource, finding people with tech skills is not easy in the current climate. And then you've got a pool of developers globally, and they're all in different locations. So I think we made the conscious choice of not trying to build in-house capability for the tech, the tech dev- development side of things and the operating We use our partners, Google and Wipro, for that. So there's many different ways of doing it. I think a lot of fintechs will do the development in-house, and that's fine. But for us, we're actually growing a lending business. 
We're growing a fee-based business. We're looking after customers. You know, we'll make 50 million pounds this year. So it's, you know, it's a fast-growing firm. It's a profitable firm. We find working with partners is the best way for us to get access to that global pool of talent and also be able to keep the core business running. A lot of fintechs you find it's, they're in the development stage and rightly so they need a lot of development resource. We're not in the development stage. We, we have a development of the way, a significant one, but we're also growing the bank significantly as we go. I mean, that there's a real lesson there to stick to your knitting and what you're great at. And technology businesses like Google and Quipro are experts in their space. So why not leverage it? And there's so many platforms now that so much of this technology has been built. It's really about... I suppose, making it work for your business. And that's what you've been doing in this human digital project. Absolutely. 100%, John. I think it's knowing what you're good at and then either you can choose to bring stuff in-house. There's no problem with that. That's a valid business decision. But partnership is also a valid business decision. So, you know, as the CEO of a business who's in five minutes into the second half, any learnings for other CEOs who want to travel this journey and I suppose take your kind of experience over the last number of years of being brave and going on this, this world first? Anything you can share with our listeners? I think don't overthink it is probably the first one because you know, the one thing you find is when you go on a big journey, guaranteed the old adage of the best strategy never survives the first contact. You know, you could spend years planning out and researching and all the rest. It's much better to get a broad blueprint of what you want and jump, even if you can't see the bottom. When you jump, and that's brave because at the end of the day, you've got shareholders and you've got to deliver returns. So, But sometimes you do have to jump and then back yourself and the team to find solutions on the way down. And I think that's what we did because, you know, at the end of the day, this is a huge investment for an organization our size. But, you know, our journey is towards an IPO and then, you know, towards a FTSE 250 firm. But for us, that differentiation is worth the jump. But so there's that piece of not overthinking it. So when you get to a certain point, you just have to back yourself and your team to find the solutions. I think that's one piece. I think probably the second is just to continue to innovate. And I've seen it in other organizations I've worked in where, you know, you start a two-year project and it's, you know, rigorously going through its milestones. And by the time you get to the two years, it's actually out of date. And so things are changing so rapidly. So the ability to be nimble and tack in different directions as things happen and you might end up with the camel versus the horse, but at least it'll be a relevant camel. You know, so I think that flexibility and innovation and not getting too wed to it has to be this. It might vary a bit and it's it's around where you'll end up. So I think there are two. And then clearly, you know, as all business leaders will know, you still got to keep your shareholders and your stakeholders happy along the journey. So those milestone wins and, you know, seeing progress, I find is critically important to certainly keeping my stakeholders on side. So it's not just we're promising something in two years' time. We're delivering things that are adding value as we're going along. And I think, so I think those ingredients are probably the, the learnings I've had, John, over the journey so far. But as I said, it, it is only 10 minutes into the second half, so we're not there yet. But I think, you know, there's so valuable learnings around anybody in business or life or career today to just back yourself, to be brave, to be bold, to have a go. And then the last point around relationship management, you know, keeping whether it's your boss or your stakeholders or your shareholders informed as you go along the journey. And I think that's a big learning I'm taking from people who are working remotely. It's the people who've reached out, who've connected, who've kept people informed, both from a leadership perspective when they're managing others and back up to their leaders. That's a key learning. 
So that's been a great, I suppose, journey that you've been on. And uh, finally, maybe some quick fire questions, Nick, around that I like to ask. So a book that you'd most recommend? To be honest, John, I'm a business reader rather than a social reader. So I probably wouldn't recommend any book specific. I'm a listener, so I'll actually do the podcasts and things like that. So, you know, my kids are active readers. And when they said to me, why don't you read more? And I said, well, I'm reading all the time at work. So I'm probably more, I, I, if I could twist the question a little bit, and I'd say I find the short podcasts absolutely fascinating because you can get a snappet or snippet of insight uh, you know, very, very quickly. And I think what I find is that time is my most precious commodity. I just don't have enough of it. So, you know, that I'm probably looking for the insights that a book might give me, but in about five minutes. Yeah, that's really interesting. I came across a podcast called Bite Size recently, and uh, it shared the journey of Johnny Wilkinson when he was kicking the drop goal for England again against Australia in the World Cup final and what was going through his head at the time. But it was just literally a I think it was a seven minute bite-sized podcast, but it just got the message. And I think that's the micro learning that we're all seeking today is rather than doing the four year tranche through college, can we get there faster? And uh, can we learn something that's relevant and recent? Yeah, I think those insights, John, are critical because, you know, I was looking for the insight I can deploy the same day into the business and get that immediate progression or impact. Very good. Best life or career advice ever given to you in life and by whom? I think, you know, one, my father gave me advice years ago about reputation and, you know, how easy it is to lose one's reputation and, you know, it's much harder to build than it is to lose. So I think there's one around that was really good advice because I think any things I came to by way of crossroads, you know, I'd always kind of think, you know, what's the Daily Mail smell test on this? You know, how would you explain this? And it's always stood me in good stead. So I think there's that piece. And a good friend of mine, said to me many, many years ago, he's an older man now, and he basically talked to me about, you know, making, treating people how you, around people don't remember what you say, they remember how you make them feel. And I think that's exactly right. You know, most people have, you know, if I said to you, what did somebody say three weeks ago, you probably won't remember, but you'll remember how they made you feel on that day, particularly if they treated you badly. And equally if they treated you, you know, really well. So that's probably a second piece of advice. I use that a lot. I'm always thinking, how am I making the person feel? It doesn't mean I won't give the hard messages because I do daily. But the point I'm making is just you can do that in a way that's empathetic and doesn't crush somebody's spirit. Gotcha. And lastly, if you to name one person that motivates you and inspires you, who would that be and why? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. The, probably the person I'd mention, I have to say before I mention the name, I'm not in any way comparing my journey to this person's journey because their journey is just. But I, I think of Nelson Mandela a lot. I think of, if you look at the journey that he went on, you know, personal sacrifice, resilience over a long period of time and huge integrity, resilience, a lot of attributes, you know, that that leaders need in, in any field of business, any field of politics, whatever it might be. So I think when I look at the character of Mandela, I think that's somebody that we should all aspire to be like as people and indeed as leaders. Fantastic. I really enjoyed speaking to you, Nick. And I think there's a lot of learnings there for CEOs and leaders of businesses on this human digital journey that we're, as we go back to, we're, some of us are in the first half, some of us are starting the second half. But I like the idea of certainty, recognition and belonging. And I think quite often a lot of us are struggling for that certainty because there's so much uncertainty in the world. But I think we've got to back ourselves, as you say yourself, and just have a go and see what happens. So, Nick, thanks so much for joining us in the podcast and really appreciated having you on. A pleasure to see you, John. Thank you very much. 
Thanks for listening to the core today. We would really appreciate if you could follow, subscribe and share as we seek to grow our community of listeners. Speak again soon.